Welcome back to EAF 461. As always, I am your joyous host, Dr. Gavin Weiser. I'm so excited to be here with you today. Um, before we get started on this week's content, as always, I'm going to turn it over so we can hear from a dispatch from the field. Hi, folks. Uh, my name is Ashley Cleland. Uh, I serve as an Associate Director of Intercultural Affairs at East Carolina University, and I specifically oversee the Women and Gender Office. And I use student development theory sometimes, to be honest. Um, what, one of the things that I find really challenging about student development theory is that a lot of it was created with a stereotypical white um, cisgender man in as their research study. So I haven't found that um, it's been especially helpful sometimes for the really diverse group of people that I serve. Um, in my space, I serve women, but I also serve uh, gender expansive folks as non-binary folks. Um, I also serve um, trans folks. So I serve a lot of people with a variety of lived experiences and I have not found that many of the theories, to be honest, um, reflect their lived experiences. But what I will say that I do use, um, particularly with um, a lot of the trans students that are in our space, is um, Evans, the transgender identity development theory, um, as one of the ways that is a jumping off point. Like, obviously, a theory is not a structure that applies to absolutely everyone. Um, and it's not always a linear thing, but it's an opportunity for me to say, to give them an a chance to reflect on where they are in their journey and ask them some questions. Uh, and that has really helped a lot of the uh, trans students in our space feel seen and like they can own um, a space that women's centers in general, like have been seen at, can be seen as a space that's just for women. So or just for cisgender women. So this is an opportunity for us to really dive into the lived experiences of folks that um, that are not cisgender women or might be trans women, or we have a fair amount of trans men that also feel really comfortable in our space. So using that is helpful and something I've also shared with my student workers, um, which on their gender journey has been helpful, though I currently have five student employees and uh, four out of the five do not identify as cisgender. They identify as non-binary or genderqueer in some way. And uh, they obviously don't see themselves in a, well, not obviously, but they don't see themselves in a transgender identity development model, right? Um, or in some of the traditional student development theories. So one of the ways that I have, I'll use theory, even if it's not, student development theory is um, models of feminist identity because any anyone of any uh, gender identity can identify as a feminist. So I use uh, Srilatha Balawala's uh, feminist leadership diamond to uh, format our trainings for the student leaders, but also faculty staff partners that I work with, as well as uh, Downing and Ron Rausch's um, model of feminist identity, which basically goes from this passive acceptance of hey, these are the sex roles, this is what it is, up to an active commitment of empowerment, um, social change, social justice. Uh, using that framework helps me also serve students and faculty and staff who are, whether they're at chapter one of understanding social justice or chapter 10 or 20. Uh, something I constantly say to my student staff, but also my grad assistant and other folks that are in our space is that we, 
aren't here to judge folks based on whatever chapter they're on, like they're started on. Uh, we're not, I'm not judging someone's chapter one against someone else's chapter 10. It's about embracing that journey. So I, I truthfully can't tell you the last time, except for right this minute, I thought about chickering. So that's not something I use. <laughs> um, or um, really like that, the main ones that that I use is that is the gender identity model. Sometimes within exploring sexuality and gender, we'll use some of the the sexuality based student development theories. Oh shoot! <laughs> Automatic lights. No. <laughs> Come on. There we are. <laughs> Uh, it's important to be friendly to the environment and automatic lights is one of the ways you can do it. Uh, <laughs> so I thank you for your patience on that. But yes, so I don't use like, truthfully, I can't think of the last time other than right this minute that I've thought about chickering seven vectors. Uh, but I find that theory can be a jumping off point or a point where you can use it to have a discussion with someone to say, to help them feel a little more normal in uh, a society that doesn't necessarily make a lot of the students I serve feel like they're normal and okay. So having a like model of how these folks develop either as feminists or as a trans folk or trans person or um, understanding gender identity, seeing the way that they grow and develop and being able to name something is really powerful. So that's really how I still use student development theory even after all these years. Welcome, thank you so very much for that. We really appreciate it. Um, without further ado, let's get in to our topic for this week, gender and queer theory. Um, and so uh, this week we are uh, covering chapter eight of our book, Gender and Gender Identity Development, uh, a chapter uh, entitled Queer Theory by Denton, who, if you remember, is who wrote one of the pieces we wrote last week. So be interested to hear your perspectives because I feel like one builds on another. Um, a piece that I wrote uh, with my colleagues, uh, Travis and Miles, uh, entitled Double Jeopardy, uh, Transversing, higher ed as a queer trans advocate. And then we'll uh, wrap up with intersectional perspectives on gender and gender identity development, and critical perspectives on student development theory, chapter six. Um, and then I also have a conversation that I hosted uh, uh, with uh, Travis and Miles earlier this semester uh, about our piece uh, that will be in here as well. And so, um, so uh, I am going to be kind of talking about chapter eight um, and uh, um, Denton's queer theory, deconstructing sexual and gender identity norms and developmental assumptions uh, at the same time. I'm gonna queer it up as they say a little bit. Um, and so um, for those of you who are listening uh, on the podcast rather than on YouTube, I'd encourage you to look through the slides at some point because this one is pretty image heavy um, for better or for worse. Uh, but yeah, so there's that. Uh, so uh, mirroring sort of some of the statistics that we opened up our sexuality last uh, week, uh, talking about sort of uh, the narratives more than just statistics, uh, trans women uh, 
who survive hate attacks are six times more likely to experience physical violence when interacting with the police than are other gay, lesbian, or bisexual survivors. Seven trans women of color were murdered in the United States during the first two uh, months of this year. And that's, this is data coming from 2017. 41% um, of trans and gender non-conforming persons have attempted to take their own lives. Um, this is in uh, juxtaposition with 1.6% of all people who have tried to take their own lives. It's a uh, massive uh, difference. Uh, LGBT people are twice as likely as Black people or Jews uh, to be attacked in a violent hate crime. Uh, they are more than four times as likely to be as uh, Muslims to be attacked in these crimes. Um, and so because trans people are more likely to experience threats, intimidation, harassment, or discrimination, and sexual violence than cis people, uh, a report found that trans women and trans people of color are much more vulnerable to violence, especially at the hands of law enforcement. In 2015, more than half of all LGBT homicide victims uh, were trans women of color. Um, and so it's really important uh, that we pay attention to the ways that uh, trans folks, uh, particularly trans folks of color, uh, are disproportionately um, taken advantage of and subject to violence. Um, and so we have to uh, be sure that when we are engaging in issues of sexuality and gender, that we are also accounting for the intersections of identity. And so that is particularly why I find some of the older models of sexuality um, and even gender um, uh, lacking because they don't account for sort of uh, the intersectional impacts of having multiple aspects of historically and contemporarily marginalized uh, identities. Here's some um, more common issues um, that trans people face. Um, and so 2013, a half of all LGBT uh, victims, uh, homicide victims were trans women of color. Um, trans people uh, are disproportionately homeless, living in poverty and incarcerated. Um, healthcare uh, often, exclu uh, often excludes trans people for coverage, including medically necessary care, such as hormone therapy, counseling, and other transition-related care. Airport security and identity documents often do not reflect accurate identities. Um, I remember a lot of my um, out trans friends um, were rushing to get passports before 45's inauguration because under the Obama administration, they were allowed to have gender markers on passports uh, that marked their truth. Um, and they were afraid that that was going to be taken away. Um, and so they rushed to get uh, passports um, and to get married and to do all the things that they thought that they, that they were rightfully fearful that they might lose under the new administration. Um, and there's uh, often a battle. Unfortunately, trans, much like the gay movement in the late 90s and early 2000s, which was kind of pointed on and centered on the idea of gay marriage, um, I would argue that the contemporary gay um, trans rights movement is centered on the issue of bathrooms. Um, and, and these are important. That's not to dismiss the importance of bathrooms. Um, there are very real social and medical reasons to have uh, trans-inclusive bathrooms, such as uh, kidney disorders for holding urine in and all sorts of other reasons. 
um, but it is, as I tried to lay out here, um, more than just bathrooms. Um, and so uh, often uh, marginalized identities get sort of parsed down to one particular uh, digestible uh, element from which to consider, and that is bathrooms uh, for trans people. Um, and there's more than just that, that impacts our community. Um, pronouns are, are particularly important. We haven't really talked about them a whole lot in class. Um, I know that I might be the first individual or and certainly the first professor uh, you've engaged with that uses non-binary pronouns. Um, and so I, I, I really love the resources from the Trans Student Educational Resource Network, which is where this uh, gender pronoun um, chart on the screen is from. Um, and so uh, it, it lays out the subjective, objective, possessive, and reflexive pronouns and how they are used. Um, so I think these are a, this is a great really tool. Um, I would also say that pronouns, much like names, if you mispronounce them or misuse them, um, it, it shows, for me at least, if you can trust that person, um, if they really are trying. Um, and it's hard, that's not to say that that isn't the case, but um, it, it is the truth of an individual consistently doesn't uh, attempt to uh, say your name correctly or shortens it or messes up your pronouns. Um, they really, I would argue, don't care to know the full richness of your identity and yourself. Um, here's a quote from uh, the text. If you care enough about someone to talk about them, then you care enough to use their pronouns. Pronouns are often something that is also um, pointed out as a singular trans experience. And then that's also unfortunate. I think it's important, but it's not the only thing. Um, I think it is important uh, to get correctly. Um, that's not what I'm saying, um, but uh, it, there's more than just pronouns. Um, and then everyone has them, right? And so like sexuality, uh, which we discussed last week, there's this idea that sexuality is only of concern uh, to non heterosexual folks. And there's this idea that pronouns are only of concern to non-cisgender folks and cisgender being if hetero and homo are quote-unquote opposites, cisgender and transgender are quote-unquote opposites. It's, it's more nuanced than that. We'll get into that later, but um, it's basic enough. Um, and so um, everyone has a pronoun um, or has the ability to have pronouns. There are some individuals who opt to not use pronouns and they would just use their names. So instead of uh, you know, Gavin went to the store, they went to go pick up margarine. I don't know why I said margarine. Um, you would say Gavin went to the store, Gavin went to go get margarine, right? Um, or Gavin went to the store, uh, here is driving uh, is, uh, herself uh, to the car, right? Uh, or to the store. Um, and so there's all, I mean, Often people sort of have an, uh, through a practice experience of being 20 plus years old, as most of you are in this class, um, a practice experience of using he and she pronouns um, that has been covered. I remember learning about pronouns when I was in like first or second grade. Um, and there's this idea that uh, they is not uh, grammatically correct for an individual. Um, if your um, position is to respect grammar, then more than people, then I think there's an issue there. Um, there's also this idea that, you know, um, I remember I got into an argument when I was a, a doc student with a fellow doc student of mine as I was presenting 
Um, and he was saying that they pronouns aren't grammatically correct and, and so on and so forth. And he was a calm doc student. Um, and um, earlier that week, uh, the AP, uh, which is his style guide, much like we use APA, had actually acknowledged and released that they is an appropriate singular pronoun. So I was able to use his own discipline against him. Um, and he was also an older gentleman um, and made a claim that, you know, no one talked about this uh, back uh, when he was a child and everything was fine. And how wrong he was. I had, uh, I've had the really phenomenal opportunity um, to engage with Mark Kiesling, who's the, uh, I think, CEO or president, I'm not really sure, of the National Center for Transgender Equality, NCTE. Um, and she's um, older than I am. Um, and she talked a lot about the notion of being a trans elder um, and how trans elders are often in their 30s and 40s due to the fact that um, so many trans people don't make it that far. Um, and it's a really sort of sad moment to think about the, the loss of life and the loss of creativity and beauty in this world due to the fact of the oppression against these communities. Um, GLSEN, uh, which is a uh, organization uh, championing LGBT rights and K-12 education, uh, found that 82% of transgender students feel reported feeling unsafe in school. Um, so this is, uh, you know, a, a report from, you know, over a decade ago. So these are the students, the trans students who are no longer in K-12 school. Um, they might be in this classroom. Uh, they might be our colleagues um, in the world, right? 46% of these students reported missing one or more days of school feeling for their safety. In 2013, 55% of trans students reported feeling unsafe at school and 30% reported missing one or more days. So uh, that data went down a little bit, which is nice. Uh, it was reported though that staff intervened on behalf of a student when negative or aggressive remarks were made to them less than 58% of the time. Uh, it was reported that negative or aggressive comments were heard from teachers and staff by nearly 51% of students. So thinking about the experiences uh, that these uh, trans and queer students are facing when they go to school, and not only are the uh, biggest allowed to say what they're saying 58% uh, of the time, um, but that 51% of students have heard uh, teachers and staff say these quotes. Um, when we talk about uh, queer theory, uh, I think it's uh, hard to not start with an understanding of uh, thinking about Michel Foucault. I mentioned Foucault a little bit last week, um, and here's just, um, I, I um, uh, yeah, so uh, my colleague Travis and I, who you'll hear from a little bit later, uh, sort of joke about one another, um, and they, uh, uh, make fun of me for being a, a huge fan of Foucault, um, and I make fun of them for being a huge fan of Jacques Derrida. Um, and so uh, Foucault talks a lot about power. Um, and so um, power, as you see, may see on the screen, power is everywhere because it comes from everywhere. Um, and so uh, here's a lot of different quotes uh, from Foucault. He's a really influential um, uh, philosopher, an activist uh, from uh, France. Uh, he died, I believe, in 1984, um, and so he is a, yeah, a fundamental part of understanding the contemporary idea, I would argue, of sexuality um, as an identity. 
So when we think about uh, queer theory, queer theory um, <laughs> um, is a, a rejection of normative structures and functions and ideas about what identity is, can, and should be. Um, and so I have some uh, funny cartoons up on the screen. Um, and so it is, uh, it's, a, it's a challenge to these normative structures. Uh, here is, uh, gender remains a powerful enough organizing concept in most contemporary societies to have a substantial interactive effect on individuals and their self-perception, self-regulation, gender expression, and gender identity. Um, and so put also simply from the work of Judith Butler, gender is not something that one is, it is something that one does and act a doing rather than a being. And so there's this iterative nature. Everything is a performance of something of a performance of a performance of a performance for Butler and sort of these uh, post structural understanding of gender is that gender is a performance in that we are performing something that has been modeled to us. And so for Liam, Liam models his identity as a young child uh, from what he sees uh, from other people. I, as a older person, have embodied more hard and fast the ideas of gender and gender performance and expectations from the messages in society and adults in my life throughout my life, right? And so that's kind of a, a simplified version of sort of performativity. Um, I have up on screen uh, another graphic uh, from the Trans Student Educational Resource, and this is the Gender Unicorn. Um, and it really parses out sort of the differences between gender identity, gender expression, the sex assigned at birth, and the physical and emotional attraction. And so it does blend a little bit uh, the ideas of gender and sexuality, but I think it's a useful uh, frame um, to use. When I worked in multicultural affairs, um, we had a stuffed unicorn that we won at the South Carolina State Fair. Um, and the uh, their name was Popsicle, and we purposely um, had them as our as our office mascot. Uh, and Popsicle was a purple unicorn with a rainbow uh, horn, if I'm remembering correctly. I should try to get a picture of them. But they used we 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 made the claim that Popsicle used they them pronouns, um, and that was a way for our office to sort of practice with that because uh, there were many of the people in the office. Uh, that was new for them. Um, and it was a low stakes way to practice these pronouns. Um, it was also, we brought the, we brought Popsicle to many office events. And so it was a way for our students to be like, oh, where's Popsicle? I really miss seeing them. And so it was a way for our students who were also still trying to learn pronouns uh, could practice the pronouns. One of my other colleagues, uh, she had a goldfish. Uh, that use the here pronouns, and it was a way for her to practice using those pronouns with a uh, a living thing, certainly, but something that likely isn't going to get offended uh, and harmed if you mess up pronouns. So here's a really cute video uh, that you can watch on your video of a, a young child um, who is, I believe, in Target uh, complaining about um, why the um, aisles for quote-unquote girls were all pink and the boys uh, were not and that some girls want to play with trucks and some boys want to play with dolls and so sort of like the wisdom from the child's mouth um, and so also laying out sort of the differences between the gender binary which is that rigid system dictating roles for individuals right the expectation that I mow the lawn um, and that my partner does um, as a woman would do the dishes 
Um, those are sort of the, the binaries that are set up for in a household uh, of the expectations. Well, that, that isn't true in our house. Um, and so we um, um, push back against those binaries, uh, both intentionally, but also based upon what we're good at. Uh, I'm really good at doing the dishes. And so I can do the dishes in a way that um, is faster and more efficient. And that's not um, a critique of my partner by any stretch of the imagination. She has uh, skills uh, in things that I do not. Um, and so that's just the, the, the way it is. Um, the gender role is all the things that a person says or does to disclose themselves as a gendered individual. And um, this is something that is uh, small little actions, people's posture, the way they sit, the way they talk, uh, their mannerisms, their clothing. There's all sorts of different things that uh, disclose uh, aspects and ideas of uh, genderism. Um, and so we'll move into Lev. Uh, Lev is the first um, sort of uh, theory laid out in our book. This is Lev's Sorry, Love's conceptualization of sex, gender identity, and gender role. Um, and so the idea that there's a sex, there's a gender identity, there's a gender role, and there's a sexual orientation. Um, and that uh, there is um, sort of, it's a still a very binary system. Um, there's the Love's transgender awareness. Um, again, this looks very similar to uh, Cass's model. The awareness, the seeking information, the disclosure to significant others, the exploration, the uh, identity and self-labeling, the exploration of transition issues and possible body um, modification, and then the integration stage of accepting some post-transition issues. Um, not a huge fan of Love, to be honest. Um, Bilodeau, who you might remember, wrote one of the pieces from last week with Chris Wren. Uh, he uses a modified version of Doug Gelly's lifespan model of LGB development um, to study the experiences of trans-identified college students. Um, and sort of uh, that lifespan model existing, uh, exiting a trans traditional gender identity to developing a personal transgender identity, to develop developing a transgender social identity, to becoming a transgender offspring, developing transgender intimacy status and entering a transgender community. So all these different ways that um, trans individuals uh, may experience sort of that identity um, coming out uh, in their identity. Again, as my critique last week uh, was largely about many of these older models, including Doug Gelly, was more of a coming out model than a developmental model. Uh, I would say that that holds true with this uh, model as well. Um, yeah. So some of the important ideas within queer theory, um, we talked a little bit about homonormativity last week, uh, which is the idea that, um, you know, the only thing keeping uh, uh, gay people from the country club is their inability to participate in gay marriage. Much like I talked about how bathrooms were the central issue for trans people, uh, marriage was the central issue. It was the, it was the issue that the human rights campaign, the little, you know, you probably saw the blue pumper sticker with the yellow equal sign uh, took up was marriage. And so the, the critique was that this was the one thing keeping sort of like rich white gay men away from the country club. Uh, and so uh, those people had the money and the agency and the capital to fight for equality and get uh, marriage. Whereas, you know, many gay teens um, uh, or queer teens or trans teens are homeless because they're kicked out of their homes. Is, is marriage really uh, the most important thing is sort of the critique. Uh, homo-nationalism uh, from Jasbir Puar uh, really uh, takes homo-normativity a little bit further and talks about how it is weaponized against um, 
um, brown bodies in particular, uh, thinking specifically about the narratives against uh, particular countries, particularly in the Middle East, about how they treat their LGBT people, uh, very much in sort of a, um, very much as we talked about with critical race theory, the ways that uh, particularly uh, Derek Bell thought about um, uh, school integration with uh, Brown versus the Board of Education as being a response to ensuring that the U.S. was able to make a claim for a inclusive space for Black communities. There's the idea that uh, as a U.S., as a liberal nation, uh, supports and respects all of its LGBT folks, but look at these countries in the Middle East where um, they um, will kill you for being gay. Um, and so this idea of using a narrative of anti-LGBT sentiment in other nations to continue to vilify particular foreign nations. Uh, this was particularly evident um, post 9-11, uh, where there, there was even a very famous, um, um, uh, yeah, very famous images of military, um, uh, US military individuals, um, posting uh, things about uh, Middle East countries. Um, there's sort of, uh, much like there is with uh, critical race theory, sort of uh, uh, schools of thought, there's within uh, queer theory as well. So there's the antisocial queer theorists, uh, which I would really talk about Leo Bersani, Lee Edelman, somewhat uh, Jack Halberson, depending on uh, parts of his work. It, aims to decenter positivity, productivity, redemptive politics of affirmation narratives of success in politics that are founded on a hope for an imagined future. Uh, whereas the reparative queer theory, and so I wanna point out that reparative it, within queer theory, the way that is used, not the way that reparative therapy works. They're very diametrically opposed. Reparative queer theory, uh, such as Michael Warner, Lauren Berlant, Jack Halberstam, Jose Esteban Minos, uh, Eve Sedgwick and Heather Love is a stance that looks to works of art for solace and replenishment rather than viewing it as something to be interrogated and indicated. Uh, for all of queer theory, it's about a commitment to the erosion of binary aspects and ideas of identity. Um, it talks about the homosexual as a category created through social interaction institutions. Uh, there's also the queer color critique or queer theory, uh, which really talks about the ways in which uh, queer theory initially was a very white dominated domain that really, really only spoke to issues uh, within white queers um, um, and pushed back against that. And I think part of that queer color critique uh, is uh, some of some some queer theorists still uh, really only consider and do not consider rather queers of color. Um, some do and wouldn't consider themselves queer of color critique individuals, uh, practitioners of queer color critique. Um, really talks a lot about power, uh, that truth and knowledge is an exercise of power. Uh, queer theory disrupts narratives and complicates these, uh, creates a knowledge, uh, creating knowledge is an active power. Um, and that queer theory shifts the focus from an individual to a system or an institution. Uh, we talked a lot all about uh, performativity already um, and, and these other ideas as well. Largely, I think queer theory um, is nebulous and hard. And, and for those of you who are listening to the podcast, there is an image currently of Jello being tried to nail to the wall. And so it's a, sort of a metaphor, I feel like, of queer theory. Queer theory sort of rejects uh, normative assumption. And as such, it is really hard to nail down. Um, uh, I'm really interested in sort of personally what queer theory looks like in such a normative structure as higher education and student affairs. 
it's, it's a sort of a pet project in the back of my mind that I'm trying to work on to, to more think about what it looks like in practice rather than research. Uh, so finally, we're going to cover uh, uh, Claire Robbins and Brian McGowan's uh, work, Intersectional Perspectives on Gender and Gender Identity Development from Curricular Perspectives and Student Development Theory. Um, it, it works through three assumptions that gender cannot be understood in isolation, gender is inextricable from expressive experiences, and gender is a socially constructed interactive process. Um, so thinking about, uh, again, this uh, piece really talks about gender sort of in the four philosophical traditions of positivism, constructivist, critical tradition, and post-structural traditions. Um, so whereas uh, positivism uh, talks about dichotomous independent variables, constructivism talks about knowledge that is co-constructed, the critical tradition moves from individual meaning making to the inequitable systems that can constrain individual experiences among students of all and or no genders. And the post-structural tradition deconstructs binaries that constrain thought and action. Um, so importantly, uh, basically, uh, uh, Robbins and McGowan are really talking about, in some regards, the intersectionality of gender. Uh, this term, again, was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw to denote the specific experiences of individuals experiencing multiple aspects of oppression. Um, she, a quote from Crenshaw says that if we aren't intersectional, some of us, the most vulnerable, are going to fall through the cracks. And then Audre Lorde, uh, there's no such thing as single issue struggles because we do not live single issue lives. Uh, LGBT individuals exist across identity categories such as race, ethnicity, religion, age, ability, socioeconomic status, and many others. Um, and as such, uh, Queer people, trans people may experience um, oppression on multiple levels or multiple layers. Um, and so it's important to understand um, the ways that um, uh, queer people and trans people and uh, folks of color and poor people and uh, rich people and Christians and Jews and Muslims and Hindus and atheists and old people and young people and folks with disabilities or disabled people or uh, folks without uh, folk, uh, abled folks um, are able to understand the different experiences they face uh, as a situated agentic individual uh, within uh, the world. Um, so um, that piece helps us to understand sort of those issues. Briefly, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the piece I wrote with Travis and Miles um, several years ago. Um, and so uh, really good friends uh, with both of them. Um, and so we decided to uh, write this piece about our experiences uh, doing the work um, as uh, Miles uh, for a time worked with me in multicultural affairs before transferring, transitioning to a new um, job in Chicago. Um, and Travis is still uh, a doctoral candidate um, at the University of South Carolina. Uh, but we talked about our role as um, killjoys uh, to be uh, a challenge to dominant discourses, uh, a purposeful transgressive choice to be out of step. Uh, we talked about the ways that we uh, use counter narratives uh, to advocate for and with our queer and trans students. Uh, we talked about utopic horizons, which is out of the work of Jose Esteban Munoz, who talks about the queerness is uh, neither here and now, but a then and there uh, of potentiality. And so Munoz falls uh, within that reparative uh, idea of queer theory. Um, 
we talked about the the aspect of naming problems when when you name a problem and this comes out of the work of sarah med um, when you name a problem, sometimes you become the embodiment of that problem. And so uh, naming a problem is uh, a dangerous act uh, for many people. Um, and then something that um, was uh, I learned also from Sarah Ahmed was the, uh, the challenge to welcoming um, um, events, right? And so working in multicultural affairs, we would have like a welcome event. And what does that signify? And what does that signal? Um, Ahmed argues that when you have a welcoming event uh, for marginalized students, as we did in our office, it signifies it signifies that sorry that they are new to this space, right? Um, that other people don't need to be welcomed; that they own that space, and that these other populations that need to be welcomed into that space are are somewhat new and don't belong as organically as another community um and so you might not agree with that um and that's totally fine uh, but that is an argument that we take up in this piece uh in particular uh, we also use autoethnography in this piece and so there's some poetry and self-reflection uh that serves to back up the data of our experiences as uh, queer and trans um advocates uh working at this institution autoethnography um uh, I sort of presciently labeled this um, uh, this slide autoethnography is queer um, off of uh, uh, some work, but uh, a new book that just came out um, by some people I've met really coolly uh, is called Queering Autoethnography and really talks about the way that um, uh, queer people use a lot of autoethnography. But autoethnography is research turned inward, looking at the self to understand cultural experiences. We as scholars understood and understand queerness as a purposeful transgression, uh, which is drawn from the work of Gloria Anzaldúa against the regimes of the normal. Uh, which is drawing from uh, Michael Warner. Um, uh, we really talk about uh, how some uh, many of the mainstream elements of research is in of itself oppressive. Uh, we talk a lot about the effect of labor uh, uh, as elders uh, within the queer and trans community of uh, doing work that are cis and straight um, or cishet folks were unable or unwilling to do uh, for their queer communities. Um, here's a quote, um, autoethnography intersects with queer theory in the deconstruction and interrogation of the terms we need to live while risking out these very terms. Uh, for us, that is the division between the political self and the professional self. While we acknowledge that the personal is political, we are seduced by the benevolent oppression of the academy to uphold the status quo in order to retain our own statuses as employees. This is a function of capitalism to maintain fear of unemployment as a means of control. Um, so in closing, um, this piece, uh, it was a piece that I'm particularly proud of still to this day, even though it's 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 a little dated. Um, it, I mean, it was written a when I was still at South Carolina, I think. Um, but I think it is um, a, a really um, uh, important piece uh, for me uh, and hopefully for others as well. Um, so uh, largely um, uh, when we think about the use of queer theory sort of uh, as it is nebulous and hard to lay out um, and nail down, um, I think uh, we need to question language and assumptions, examine spaces, policies, and programs for bias. Um, attempt to use gender inclusive language 
um, and gender non-specific language uh, when we're talking about individuals. Challenge yourselves, continue to uh, learn. Uh, learning is a lifelong process that you can always learn more, consume uh, information from uh, queer and trans sources as well as queer color and trans people of color sources to really diversify sort of your perspectives and what you know. Um, include LGBT issues organically in your curriculum without it necessarily being like queer week. Um, but you know, there's all sorts of ways that you can do that. Um, provide correct information when you hear uh, erroneous information about queer and trans or, or really any marginalized community um, and support, listen and learn from LGBT folks in your life. Um, uh, now I'm going to turn it over to the conversation that I had with Travis and Miles, and I'll see you in just a little bit. Welcome uh, to week 10, I think, of student development theory. Uh, super stoked to have uh, two uh, brilliant people here with us today um, who I had the privilege to co-author a piece entitled a double jeopardy, transversing higher ed as queer trans advocates. Um, and so uh, we'd love to allow them some time and space to introduce themselves. Um, we can go alphabetically and maybe start with Miles. Okay, um, I'm Miles. Uh, I use he, him pronouns. Um, I, I started out in higher ed and I'm kind of still in higher ed. Um, I now work at a um, education consulting company in uh, Schaumburg, Illinois. So I live in Chicago um, and I have three cats. Um, <laughs> did you did you tell me to introduce myself some other way? No, I didn't. I said however you wanted to. I think okay. though people are going to want to know the names of their cats. The cats are important. So and uh, I always have to bring them up. And also one of them also, also like likes to put her paws up like while I'm doing zoom meetings because she gets kind of jealous that like someone else is getting my attention so if you see some cat paws uh welcome to work from home in a global pandemic sure what are the cat's names miles clara ellis and poe <laughs> cool, cool. and for the nerds poe is all black and she is named after the edgar allen <laughs> cool. cool travis yeah, hey, um, my name's Travis Wagner. I use they, them pronouns. Uh, I am a PhD candidate in information science at the University of South Carolina. I am also an adjunct faculty member in women's and gender studies there. I teach courses on things like race, class, gender, and sexuality. Um, I also teach things like sexual diversities. I do not do anything related to higher education in the sense that um, or instructor and or Miles do, but I'm in proximity to that world and, <laughs> and it informs the sort of work I do as an instructor and as um, both a advocate and member of, of this community. I have a singular one cat um, named Pink who might also show up in the background for, you know, important information for this, <laughs> for this meeting. <laughs> um, while we're at it, I, I have sort of a cat. I guess I'm a, a cat step parent uh the cat doesn't much like me um and probably will not uh make their way here um so yeah um so this piece was written a few years ago sort of when we all were together uh with travis uh since this has been published both miles and i have departed 
um, for others. No, actually, I think Miles is already gone um, when we started. I, I left like right when we started writing it, and now we're strangely still close to each other and in, in geographically, which is kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to remember which of your cats snuggled up with me when I crashed your place last year. Uh, my best guess is Ellis. She loves like a stable human being that doesn't want to touch her. So, and she'll just get right next to you um, because you're not going to move, and she loves that. <laughs> I don't know how stable I am, but I definitely probably won't touch <laughs> um, So uh, I guess uh, this piece uh, uses autoethnography a lot. Um, so a blend of poetry and uh, narrative stories about our experiences at this institution, uh, advocating for queer and trans communities as well as being members of those communities. Uh, so how, um, how does sort of your or our experiences as these, as, as we kind of talk about that notion of double jeopardy, being both of the community and advocating for a community. What was that experience like for you? Um, uh, I think I think my experience is a little uh, different because I, you know, work directly with students, and most recently, um, my position after leaving. University of South Carolina, I work directly with queer and trans people on the south side of Chicago um, who are not students, but who are seeking, um, you know, stability and employment and housing and other things. And so I think um, one of the big pieces is that you have in, you know, in reading the piece, I talked a lot about this, about feeling like you have so much to do for the students that you work with. Um, and there's so much you want to give to them. And you're navigating those things yourself, right? Like when I was at you know, um, the University of South Carolina, I, I used a different name. I didn't make anyone respect my pronouns. Um, I did not have a beard. I had not started hormones. I was really just figuring out who I was as a person and also trying to navigate telling students, you know, about these, you know, bureaucratic things that were preventing us from keeping them safe, which were the same things that prevented me from being safe and, and you know, expressing myself in my workplace. Um, and so that really starts to uh, wear down on you a little bit. Um, because it's like, you know, you want to help students, you want to give them everything that they need, uh, but neither of your needs are being met. Um, but it also kind of turns into something beautiful, right? Because you, you build these relationships. Um, you know, a lot of times in student affairs, they'll talk about having like these intense boundaries with your students. And I think when you are a marginalized person that works within marginalized communities, it's really hard to do that because you end up becoming in community with your students. Um, and while they find so much comfort in you as a professional, you also find comfort in knowing that they exist and that they hold your identities. Um, and so I think that's where I kind of push some boundaries sometimes in the student affairs world is I get, I get really, uh, you know, a little pushback when people talk about building these like really strict boundaries, particularly in student development theory. Um, because I think that that, in a lot of ways, that's not easy to do when you're working within a community and that kind of double jeopardy piece. Yeah, um, so I mean, Miles said everything much, much more eloquently than I probably will, especially from that sort of position of having to advocate on behalf of students while you're still trying to figure stuff out for yourself, right? Um, you'll notice when you read this piece that when I talk about my gender identity in there, it is it was from a position where it's like, I'm not really sure what's going on right now, right? Um, and I would love to tell you that I've like figured all of that out, but that's absolutely not true. And I don't know that that's a problem per se. Um, but what I saw happening was that sort of like 
the same way Miles is saying that like students would come and be like, you have answers, you know these things, just by sort of two things, like I'm the instructor teaching them gender studies, whatever that may be. So I am assumed to, to possess some sort of knowledge about like a truth about gender, which I first off don't have. But also I think I was already being read by students, particularly my trans and gender non-conforming students in a way that I was hoping would be read. So they'd be like, oh, you must know these things about gender, right? Like the ambiguity of it. So please tell me that like, this is how transitioning works. And I'd be like, that's, uh, that's not something I can speak to with any sort of truth, but I can help you agree that it's going to be really confusing and frustrating. And all I can do is sort of be a sounding board to figure these types of things out. And without getting sort of um, too in the weeds with the discussion, sort of jumping ahead a bit, but the one student I talk about the relationship that I have with in it, um, we ended up having like a meetup where he was recording a podcast to talk about his experiences at USC. And he, he was like, I want you to know that you were like the professor who made it all right for me to be who I am today. And I was like, oh, I need you to know that you were the student who made it all right for me to be who I am or who I'm figuring out to be, right? And like, there's no sort of like cool ass queer theory that's gonna like tell you how to get to that moment. But there's something about the visibility of it happening, even if you don't know the language for it or you're still trying to figure it out, that can make that space really rewarding in spite of everything else not being real cool at the moment. So I always sort of try to take that away from, from what we were doing there is like, we lay out a lot of topics that are just not great and not fun. But all that to say that like, it doesn't necessarily have to be negative all the time, right? Yeah, so I think that would be my sort of initial response. Yeah, I think what's uh, particularly, uh, multiple things are interesting is, uh, First, like all three of us have changed a lot since writing this, right? Mm -hmm. um, I was just thinking that, I was like, wow, it's been weird, it's weird. <laughs> yeah, like I wrote portions of this piece, uh, the, one of the poems that I have in here, I think the daddy queer scholar, activist, educator, student, affairs professional, like I wrote that shit early on in my doc program for a conference paper sort of about navigating um, being a full-time student and a full-time uh, employee. Um, and so that piece was written, uh, the first draft of that poem was written before I had a kid. Um, and um, my child is now almost three and a half, right? That also is. Yeah, right? Um, <laughs> and so uh, sort of that is interesting how we've all sort of grown and shifted, uh, which makes, I think, I don't know, and, and y'all can correct me if I'm wrong, writing autoethnography within sort of like um, non-fixed category identities such as like gender or sexuality, much more, I don't know, more difficult is fair, but an interesting thing to navigate when things change, right, um, and vary. So there's not really a question there, just an observation. I did think about that because I read the piece again, just, you know, even though we're the ones that wrote it, I just read it to, you know, freshen up. And uh, even some of the ways that the three of us talk about ourselves, just like in interacting with you both in the, you know, the ways that we do in our current time, I'm like, wow, this is so different. And I even think we had to go through 
a thing with the publishing folks to get my name changed in the piece in the middle of it being published. Yeah, they, they kept dead naming you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and using an old email address. <laughs> it was a wild ride. <laughs> and I had that um, with a piece that I just published this past summer that they auto auto corrected my pronouns um, in the thing, but that wasn't how it was in the proof. And so when it came out, I was like, oh, cool, my article's out. I was like, oh, shit, my article's out. And I don't need to go to the editor and be like, yo, like, they were really nice about it and, like, really supportive. And, like, the editors, I don't think it was them. I think it was the publishers. Uh, but, you know, sort of, anyways. Those uh, Travis, you, 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 uh, you talk about, or one of the session, sections that is uh, one of your stories is uh, labeled or uh, headed uh, by the, the, the phrase, research is oppressive. Mm -hmm. um, I've talked a lot about that in this class already, but I would love to hear um, another perspective, um, at least from Travis. And if Miles, you have things to add uh, to that, I would love to hear. Um, and I, I think the, the folks would love to hear other perspectives than just mine on that topic. Yeah, I forgot until revisiting this how just like declarative all of my section headings are of just like what's the most um, and I don't want to use the word antagonizing, even though I would say who I was directing that would be antagonistic, right? Like whatever sort of infrastructure it would be. Um, but I mean that you, in the I'm way sorry, that you like pause real quick. You know what? Yeah. Uh, um, Sorry, to continue on, Travis, please. Sorry about that all. Yeah, no, don't sweat it. Um, I think I was saying that, like, what I often think about, and it, it sort of echoes back to your point, Gavin, about, like, the idea that you're producing any sort of research, even autoethnography, about identities that themselves aren't fixed is, like, inherently a challenge. But I think that holds true for any sort of research that has as its focus, whether from a position of insider, and I'm sure you all get into whether or not you can ever actually be an insider in research. That's not this discussion, but like the idea that like you are you are going to make declarative ontological statements about a group of people. And in order to do that, you're gonna make some or organizational choices, right? And I think what I get into is like, you have to be able to sit with those choices and understand that whatever version of research you produce is inside of a vacuum of production, right? Like and um, I often think about, um, Gavin, I think Miles probably also maybe knows, um, Dr. Payal Shaw, who is a, a faculty member here at USC, I believe was on Gavin's, um, dissertation committee, maybe your chair, right? She's my methodologist. Oh, yeah. Um, but sh she would talk about, like, she's like, she did research with, like, girls' education in, in, like, rural India, and she's like, I will never do justice to this group of people in a correct way but you can always be sort of advocating for doing better but you can't do that until you understand structurally that research as we know it in the united states as we know it globally is like a system that is exploiting people even if it's trying to illuminate their stories right and i think that's sort of like what i was thinking of in that angle right is like if we're talking about doing research about lgbtq folks even as members of the lgbtq community we have to understand that we're gaining something from it and we're doing it inside of a system that, that, that as we lay out in the piece, doesn't always or rarely does benefit that group. I'm rambling, but that's sort of my, my thought on that. 
I um weirdly at I kind of have some direct experience with that like just through because the last organization I worked at did HIV research in uh you know black men who have sex with men and trans black trans women their communities and that's often the feedback that we got even though most of the folks researching them were from their own community like the way that research is set up they just constantly felt like they were another number another you know thing to be published in another paper and you know all they got from it was bus cards and maybe you know something to eat for that day or whatever it was and that's constantly the pushback is like very rarely you know while we like research is always so important because it like helps you know fund these you know programs that help increase access to prep and all these things in Chicago we're still like doing it at the disadvantage of the very communities that are trying to be helped um, and so that's a a super thing that you just have to think about and find the ways that you can do the least harm as possible when you're working in communities, um, particularly um, if they, you know, hold multiple identities that you yourself don't hold. Yeah. Yeah, it's certainly a, um, a tightrope to walk, right? And so I think a lot about when I'm teaching research or conceptualizing research or thinking about research or designing research, um, you know, the what is it, the part of the Hippocratic Oath for medical professionals is do no harm. Um, and, and I don't know if I believe that is ever possible with research. I think it's all about trying to do as least harm and most good as possible. Uh, but within sort of a, a, a pulling into um, um, kind of a queer theoretical framework, like who's good, right? Um, there isn't sort of this like notion of like who gets to define good uh, who's good is it? Um, and generally, it's always sort of the producer of research and not necessarily those who are being researched. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's a it's a really particularly difficult tightrope to walk. And one of the reasons why, um, for this class at least, I don't have students doing primary research um, because, and, I, and I've talked to them in class before that, but um, I know it was my experience when I took this class as a master's student, and my, maybe you can account for that as well, Miles. Um, I had to go out and do interviews with people and, and sort of come up with this paper writing about people's experience. And when I was a practitioner, inevitably there were some very green, but also very well-meaning graduate students uh, trying to interview the students with which I worked um, and cause them a lot of harm. Mm -hmm. And so that's why uh, for this class, I don't do that. Uh, it looked like you were going to say something else. I just remember the exact moment that, uh, you and I both got put on the same email that several of those students wanted to interview our students. And before I could even make it to your doorstep, you had sent an email back that was like, absolutely not. <laughs> and I don't know if it was when you were there or not, um, or maybe it was the same semester, but it's like really well-meaning, um, sweet student was like, hey, can I come to the, I forget what even we called it, but it was like a, a, a trans or queer people of color chat group that our office held. And I was like, yeah, like, um, for sure. Absolutely. Like they're open to students regardless of sort of uh, level, whether undergrad or grad, um, not knowing that the student would then turn it into an impromptu interview uh, for a project. Um, and so like, I sort of lost my shit 
um, and was a little bit, I was pretty harsh with the student, uh, but they didn't really understand what mm -hmm. they did as being harmful, right? Mm -hmm. So like as a faculty member and as a, a time practitioner, like giving students the context and the tools to understand their own positioning as uh, theorists, as, as scholars, uh, as graduate students, so that they don't go into something sort of like and do unintentional harm. I don't believe to this day that that student, because I had a, a very long conversation with them afterwards and they were very apologetic and didn't realize what they had done. I don't think that they were trying to do harm. They did, right, which is the important part. Um, but it, it was a learning moment for, I think, all parties involved. Mm -hmm. So was yeah, that why yeah. you were there or was that after you were gone? I think that happened like as I was going, because I remember, um, yeah. But, I, and I, I mean, to that point, I think that's one of the reasons I always struggled with some of the more like structured student development theories is I felt like they gave, uh, you know, more privileged groups of people a false sense of understanding certain identities, like when reading, you know, critical race theory or, uh, you know, some of the theories around queer and trans identities, it gave, you know, people a false sense of like, oh, I understand these people now and I can go in and do these types of things and I won't cause harm. Um, and so that's one of the ways that I, you know, try to be really careful when I'm engaging with different theories is just understanding that that's all, that's what they are is theories. And they're, you know, sort of, um, there are things outside of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And if I can add to that, um, I just, just because it happened today and I think it's important to acknowledge it is like, once you become keenly aware of the sort of caution you have to take in doing research with um, communities who've been historically oppressed or marginalized is that you don't ever get to be like sort of like passive in your sort of recruitment and engagement right um i was doing recruitment for a grant that i was on today and i, I know gavin saw it because um it was a shared facebook group that we we're in and like sent out like the recruitment stuff and there was some like broken link type things which which happens right but that wasn't even sort of the issue like I know most of the people in this Facebook group. So even when I was sending it out, I was like, okay, so this will be easy and I don't have to answer any questions, but like I get a litany of like, oh, hey, um, what are you doing? And what kind of things do you wanna know? And I was like, well, oh, why do I have to answer this? You all know me, right? But that doesn't ever go away, right? So you have to still be aware that like, you still have to be thoughtful and engage in spaces, even when you're an insider, even when you've established those connections, because you can't easily undo the sort of examples that we're hearing from both of you, but also just again, the general idea that this research always has that threat to it, right? And I think that's important to remember if you do this type of work. So one of the last week in class, we were talking about sort of the, the sexuality theories, um, you know, Cass and Doug Kelly and uh, the, the, the theories that I know that Miles is familiar with um, that, um, echo sort of what uh, he was talking about in terms of that they make this idea that you just understand right like oh you're in the fourth phase of cast or the first fourth stage of cast right um, and I'm, I'm currently working on a chapter right now uh, about sexual identity theory with a, a student um, and so you know I think that echoes what uh, Miles was talking about um, a lot of that you don't, right? And I think that's central to this, what I teach in this class is like, you don't understand 
uh, people because you understand and have memorized casts um, or any of these other identity development theories. Uh, but they, at best, uh, I think, uh, serve as a starting point for us to understand some people's experiences um, and that um, sort of, as I keep saying, to understand and think rhizomatically in terms of these interconnections between theories and um, how they uh, link together and you can pick and choose sort of like elements that work for your own practice uh, and your own uh, reasoning. Um, one of the things that I particularly like about um, sort of some of the, uh, in particular, uh, some of the theories that Miles is talking about, the more kind of social theories rather than uh, identity development theories. So like critical race theory or queer theory, uh, we talked about the book also talks a lot about intersectionality um, as a theory, theoretical model. Um, and so all these different ways help us to understand people's positioning within society. Um, how has sort of your um, path through your educational career shifted in terms of how you do or don't use theory in your practice? Um, um, I would say, I would that, say that, that personally, uh, moved away somewhat quickly from, um, my cat just jumped across the screen, sorry, uh, moved away somewhat quickly of using student development theory, particularly queer and trans theories in my direct practice almost immediately. Because, you know, there's this, there's this idea, especially in the student affairs world, I literally had a recent graduate ask me the other day, you know, that, that was interviewing at my company, like, are you going to should I be prepared to answer questions about student development theory in my interview? And I was like, no, like, <laughs> no, 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 no. And so I think like a lot of times, like it's student development theory is sort of touted as this thing that should lead every action that you make as a practitioner in student affairs. And I think what's most important is what you said, Gavin, to use that as a starting point, right? So you have this knowledge and you have this understanding um, that is a place for you to start as a professional to then use that to sort of fuel, you know, your direct practice with students, which will teach you more than student development theory kind of ever had the time to. This is Nugget, sorry. That doesn't look like a cat. It's not a cat, it's my friend's dog, sorry. Um, but yeah, so I, I think like through direct practice, you kind of use student development theory as a starting point. And I immediately recognized as a professional that I was not seeing someone follow the direct, you know, model of you know the things I learned in school and uh, that's kind of how it, it was presented to me right like and um, I know that you're not presenting that way Gavin and these students should know that they're very lucky um, but you know that was kind of how it was presented to me is like this is what should like lead the way and I immediately realized that like my direct experiences with students and even my own identities as a queer trans person helped me understand students you know, much more than what I had learned. And so I think like, for me, student development theory is that starting point, like you said, and it's very valuable for what it is um, as a framework to start to learn about people. But for me as a practitioner, it was all about direct experience and how I could build on that foundational knowledge as a professional. Um, and I did not, I do not to this day use it directly in a lot of my direct work with students. One of the things that I um, say a lot in class is that uh, theory at best serves as a, a shared language, mm -hmm. uh, right? 
And so it, it is a way that we can communicate. And so I think in week three, I talked about uh, SAS, right? And so um, if I were to say, oh, uh, that's SAS, that means a multitude of different things, right? On the campus that I exist, that's student access and accommodation services. Mm -hmm. uh, at my previous institution, uh, that's the entire division of student affairs and academic support. Um, it can also be like uh, a uh, like a, an attitude, right? Like someone being sassy or giving someone sass, right? Uh, so like there's a, a, a litany of different ways that this one four-letter word uh, can be deployed. And so if you don't have a, a shared set of language, um, and so that's what I think. I think um, I wouldn't necessarily say that this piece belongs as identity development, uh, but I think that there is theory within it. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm looking at uh, a, a section uh, entitled Humanity Divided by Oppression, right? And, and we, we have a, a line that says, queerness exists as a challenge to dominant discourses, a transgressive choice to be out of step, to challenge, to be a killjoy, right? And so here we're, we're drawing on the work of Sarah Ahmed, and, and I would argue that there's a, the term killjoy is a theoretical frame of how people engage and do work continuing to kind of kill joy, um, as she says. What um, sort of frames guide your practice or your work? Is that still for Miles? <laughs> I mean, well, I think it's both, right? Like, I, I know the Travis, uh, you don't work as a, a within student affairs, but you do important work that I is, is is some of the work that student affairs people should be doing, frankly, right? Well, I mean, like, uh, I can still answer that question to a certain degree. Um, I would like, and it, I would never say simply that I like queer theory and frames my, like informs my framework because that's first off like a nonsense statement. And also like, it's not easily reducible to that, right? Right. Um, but I do like, and I um, I can tell that's a, a line you wrote because you put Killjoy in it. So it's definitely a sentence that you wrote when we wrote that. Um, not that I don't love Sarah Ahmed's work, but just not that I don't use that piece in that way. Um, but it's, it's that very idea that like, we are in spaces where a lot is presumed to be neutral and or normal. So like my sort of initial framework is like, all right, if we're going into this space, what normative presumptions are being made about this space and how can we unsettle those. So I use that as a pedagogical approach first, but I also use that as a sort of interaction between people, right? Because, and I don't, you know, I don't know if we were at a place as like um, advocates, academics, whatever we want to call ourselves when we were writing this, to even do that with ourselves, right? Like how we were in, in turn, like assuming normative presumptions, right? Like, for all we know, there could be like, I mean, I, I highly doubt it, but I, there could have been like a space where people are like, I'm having a wonderful time being a trans advocate and trans person in higher education, right? And we sort of skewed that, right? Or we assume maybe we were universalizing institutional expectations of a PWI that's a state college, right? How might have it been different at a HBCU, at a community college, these types of things, right? But what I always, so I mean, that's probably like, at the end of the day, like a postmodern framework of like assuming that there is no sort of normative way of going about this, but that's not a simple way of being like nothing's true or real, right? Um, that's weird philosophy that I don't, I don't think folks need to waste their time with, but we, we need to ask questions about what 
what is being normalized in a space and, and who is benefiting from that. And I think that's a really useful thing that it sounds like would echo the sort of way you all are thinking about higher ed work, right? Is like, there's a lot of institutional undoing that needs to happen mm -hmm. at tiered levels, but also like horizontally and vertically, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I, I think from like the, me as the least academic person here, from my perspective, I always think when I like go into to spaces, um, you know, there, so there are like tons of like privileges that people know about, right? Like being white and, and, you know, or being cis or being straight, but there are also like other parts of my personality that I come from a framework of like leveraging those, right? Like I'm pretty charismatic. And when people meet me, they almost always like, they, I don't get a lot of people that are mean to me. Right. So when I go into spaces, like to your point, Travis, I think about like, what are the ways that I can use who I am as a person and sort of my, you know, disarming personality to challenge some of the things that are happening in this space or what ways can I make change using me as being like, you know, especially now that I'm in the Midwest in the middle of Chicago, like in what ways can I use this accent and this, you know, white privilege of mine to like dismantle some of the pieces that are going to happen in this space that I'm entering. Right. Um, and so that's kind of the framework I come from is, you know, immediately when entering a space, I just am like trying to evaluate um, what things are existing there, like you said, Travis, and then what ways can I use who I am as a person, all aspects of me, you know, whether it be personality, um, you know, race, whatever, um, what ways can I use that to immediately begin to um, sort of break down some of those barriers in this space? Um, and that, I mean, particularly like, you know, when I used to work in employment, uh, one of the things that would always happen when I worked with other employment specialists is they would just be so shocked that, you know, uh, you know, a black trans person from the South side had never had a resume before. Um, and I'll kind of use my like more fun personality to kind of like challenge that right in the moment, right? Like we're working with folks and like, we have had access to those types of things through like college career centers and like dozens of resources that people just don't have access to. And so like people are never really hurt when I tell them those things, right? Because of the way that I speak and the way that I talk to people. And so like, that's kind of the framework I'm coming from. It was like, every person should figure out what tools do you have in your little bag or whatever student affairs people say, um, what tools do you have in your little bag that will help you dismantle racism, transphobia, homophobia, and the spaces that you enter and how can you use those, um, you know, immediately, right? Uh, even when you're a new person in a space. Um, and that's kind of how I think like, immediately I'm always like the wheels are turning as soon as I go in somewhere I'm like oh nope 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 okay <laughs> these are the things that I'm gonna address one two three um and so I I think that's kind of how I think of it and none of that is like academically backed that is just miles doing miles <laughs> I'd cite that miles 2020 I'll put it in a paper yeah for real though um um thank you both so very much uh for taking this time um this is, uh, for me personally, fulfilling to be able to spend time with the both of you again this evening. Um, two of my favorite people in the entire world, um, even though we can't uh, be together in community physically right now because of space and pandemics. Um, know that uh, I appreciate you. Thank you so very much. Um, and uh, yeah, hopefully one day we can be together again and do some other cool shit. And I don't, I don't mean to offer this in case you don't want to, Travis, but if any of your students like have questions or want to connect with me, 
LinkedIn, email, whatever, feel free to give my contact information out. Um, I work in a very different world now, but I'm always happy to like connect with people who are interested and I'm happy to support you. Yeah, same here. And I'm happy to talk about research and all of those things that are always a dumpster fire. Anytime. <laughs> <laughs> Literal dumpster fire. Uh, both of you are two of the uh, most generous, kind people I've ever known. So uh, I'm not unsurprised by that. Let's not make uh, me cry on Zoom, Gavin, okay? Let's just. Again, so much for being here and thank you to uh, Miles and Travis uh, for being willing to have a conversation with me about the work that we did several years ago for you all. Um, I hope that was a enjoyable uh, conversation for you to witness as we were kind of just um, talking about the work that we had done uh, several, a few years ago. I, I think it was published in 2018. Um, so I think we uh, uh, wrote it in like 2017. Um, anyways, um, have a wonderful rest of your week and I will talk with you soon. Take care.